So let's turn to Psalm 69 this morning. Now for the few weeks leading up to Easter, we are going to return to our studies of Psalms. If you remember, hmm, year, two years ago, I said we were going to start in on this and be in and out for uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years, depending upon how much time the Lord uh, gives us together. Um, And we still, after even all that time, we still would not have uh, plunged into all the depths and the riches uh, that uh, these 150 Psalms provide for us. Um, And you'll know that uh, every time we're in the Psalms, I quote a lot of Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is, the, the reason I do that is because Spurgeon has written the uh, what the uh, what's the word I want the best uh, commentary and the most extensive commentary on the book of Psalms uh, the treasury of David is uh, several volumes long plus he preached on Psalms for many years and so uh, most of Spurgeon's uh, sermons are preserved I don't know who wrote them down whether he wrote them down or I mean he preached four or five days a week uh, without a microphone to 10,000. Uh, so, um, you know, big guy, big voice, big brain, okay? So the, he has a lot to say about the book of Psalms, and it's, it is so rich and so merciful what the Lord has for us in this book. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I will read from the book of uh, Psalms, the 69th Psalm. I won't read all of it, um, I'm going to read um, like the first 15 verses, and then right at the end, we'll catch up at the end as well. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to your Holy, by your Holy Spirit to your Word. Fill us with what it has for us today, that we might understand the riches that you have for us. We might understand that you follow through on what you say that you will do. You are always faithful. No matter our circumstances, you remain the same, and you care for us more than we can understand. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 69, and you can see the theme straight off in the first two words. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood overflows me. I am weary, weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O oh God, it is thou who dost know my folly. My wrongs are not hidden from thee. May the, those who wait for thee not be ashamed through me, O Lord of hosts. May those who seek thee not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit at the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to thee, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in thy greatness of thy loving kindness, answer me 
with thy saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me and may the deep not swallow me up. And may the pit not shut its mouth on me. Now flip over to verse 32. And I'll read just from there to the end here. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, they, that they may dwell there and possess it, and the descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, I, I, I read there at the end, just so you get the idea of what happens so often in the Psalms. The psalmist starts out and he goes, oh, I'm dying here, Lord. Are you not paying attention to me? Look at my enemies. They're attacking me for no reason. And, and you know, I, I keep faithful to your word and they hate it. And I, I love the verse 12. And I am a song of the drunkards. You know, that's, that's, they're, they're sitting in the pubs and they're singing songs about how bad I am. Okay? And, and that's where I've stooped. That's what my life is, Lord. But then at the end of the psalm, we see that he... He knows where his salvation is. He knows what the Lord is going to do for him. He understands these things. And he says, let heaven and earth pray. The sea and, praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save. He will save. And what's he start with? Save me, O God. And then at the end, it's like, all right, I've had my say. And he's, he has said it to whom? To the Lord. And he's poured out his heart to the Lord about his struggles. And at the end, he is confident the Lord will save. So here in the book of Psalms, we're going to, for the next, as I said, next few weeks, we're going to dig into some of the Psalms and their New Testament references and their New Testament passages and, and how they're kind of used both in the context of the Psalms and the New Testament and, and how we're to live those things out. How do they apply to us today in our world? Now, sometimes the passages will uh, simply be an encouragement to us. Uh, sometimes there'll be a storehouse for us to stash away in our hearts and our minds, and, and, and they will add to the collection of the richness of, of God's grace and mercies in our lives. Other times they will challenge us to act when we leave here. There will be a call upon our hearts to go and to do something and, and to apply it directly and immediately. And other times uh, it will just be to his praise and to his thanks and to his glory. So Psalm 69 is, a, is one of those psalms that falls into the category of a messianic psalm. There are uh, quite a few of them that point to the things of Christ and are referenced by Christ. And as we know, we read earlier, this is referenced in the Gospel of John. Um, later, it's also referenced by Paul in Romans 13, uh, Romans 15. It is uh, quoted directly, seven verses are quoted from this psalm in the New Testament, and many of the themes that are here in this psalm are alluded to and played out and, and expanded upon in the New Testament as well. But, not, of course, not all the psalm is messianic. Not everything here applies to Christ. I mean, verse 5, it says, And my wrongs are not hidden from thee. Well, Christ didn't have any wrongs, so we can't really apply that verse. But so many of the other passages uh, within this psalm are messianic. 
Now, the context of the psalm shows us a man who's hurting, a man who has uh, been wronged, and his enemies have slandered him falsely, have uh, falsely accused him. So his enemies are not simply his enemies alone, but they are the enemies of the Lord. In part, the very reason they hate him is because of his own identification with God, his love for the Lord, uh, his worship of the Lord, his godly life. I mean, they just can't stand him. It offends their, their pagan sensibilities that this man would live in this way and would strive for holiness. They're not happy with it, so they mock him. They accuse him falsely. Um, he's been betrayed. Um, I, I mean, this has been going on since, uh, well, since Old Testament times for those who want to live righteously, those who want to adhere to the things uh, of, of the teachings of our Heavenly Father, to the things of Christ. And we see this today, of course, in the world as well. Now, there are places in this world uh, where Christians uh, fight for their lives. Um, they're being persecuted. They're being killed. Um, when, when they try to live for their faith, they're, they, they're in danger. Not so much in, the, in what we'll call the first world countries. It's a more subtle persecution. Uh, um, nobody's tried to come and, and kill me for, for preaching the gospel. Uh, but there are places that we find in, in our culture and our society where those who live the gospel or those who present it or those who share it are kind of um, subtly suppressed, either with, um, you know, uh, our views are, you know, kind of... Uh, superstitious or you're really anti-intellectual if you hold to these things uh, this teaching uh, really um, uh, you know this old book these old teachings it's outdated uh, and then of course there are those who want to update it and, and change God's word into what fits with society today uh, we see this in other places um, certain academics are not uh, allowed to pursue certain degrees because of their worldview. Uh, worldview is Christian, and they don't want Christian worldviews in certain academic disciplines. We see it in uh, uh, so much of what Hollywood produces. Uh, it runs, you know, opposite and antithetical to the things of Scripture. Their lives, so many of the lives there, are lived in ways that we would not agree with, uh, according to God's word. Um, so many of the movies, even when they try to make a theological movie, okay, good theological movie like Noah. Right? Did you see that? I mean, the name was right. There was an ark, and it rained, and then water came up. So we, we got some thumbs things there. But unfortunately, a lot of people just, they, you know, now I quote Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, but, but you know, I, I've read the Ten Commandments. And I've read Exodus, so I, I kind of differentiate between the movie and that. But so many people just, they're not reading this. They're just taking their theology. Well, did you know there were giant stone monsters in Noah's time? Did you know that? Gosh, I'm looking for them. I haven't found them yet. Okay. Or, or, or you know, you get voices that are, are, are very theologically liberal that are raised as, as the mainstream. Or, you know, I, I, I've given up trying to... to, to recognize any, any of the experts they bring in to quote things which are spiritual or theological. None of the guys I read make it on TV. Now, maybe that's because we're so boring and, and you know, we just don't sell well on television. But none of the guys that I'm reading, and most of the guys I read are dead, too. So they don't, they don't, they don't play well on television, okay? Um, so, you know, 
you've got all these things which are subtle, you know, accusations, subtle suppression of the gospel. And it's just like, well, yeah, the gospel used to be mainstream, but it's not anymore. It's just forcing it out, forcing it to the edges little by little. And those who want to adhere to the things of the gospel are put out there as well. They're just, we're just marginalized to some degree, ever more and ever more. Well, we have to remember that it is Christ alone who is our salvation. Okay? It's, it's not a politician. It's not a preacher. It is Christ alone. I'm going to paraphrase Spurgeon. And for those of you who are, are, are morning and evening people who read his devotion, um, I think it's in September or October that this one comes out of Hebrews. And that's the one I'm paraphrasing. He says, remember, we are not saved by our thoughts of Christ. We are saved by Christ. We are not saved by our feelings about Christ. We are saved by Christ. We are not saved by what we do for Christ. We are saved by Christ. It is his work and his blood and his sacrifice alone that atones for our sin. No human endeavor, no good intention, no warm feeling about Christ will get us to heaven or to put us in a right standing before our Heavenly Father. Only the work of Christ can do that. That's where our salvation lay. So back to the psalm. Back to the psalm. Now it it bothers him not because of just his own situation. It doesn't... the, the weight is, is bad, okay? The false accusations and the persecution, that's bad, but it doesn't bother him just because it's happening to him. It bothers him because these people are also haters of God. And, and the psalmist, um, David in particular, he's, his, his sensitivities have been informed and shaped and molded by the Lord, by his presence with the Lord, by his time with the Lord, by his, his faith in the Lord, and he's, he's sensitive to those who hate God and hate the things of God. And that's what he is finding here. These people are persecuting him, um, not just because of who he is, but because of what the Lord has done in his life. He knows that injustice is inherently uh, abhorred to our Heavenly Father, displeasing, and it bothers him Though he is part of God's people and though he loves the Lord and, and though he's been redeemed by God's grace and mercy, he's, he kind of looks around and says, this is my lot in the world presently. In the fallen world, this is what I'm suffering. And he comes to the Lord and he cries out with all of his heart before the Lord. He says exactly how he feels. Now, when you go to the Lord in prayer, don't think that you've got to pray uh, how I say it, piously, oh, Heavenly Father, you know, and, and just all the good things. Pour out your heart to the Lord. This is what I'm feeling, Lord. This is what I'm struggling with. I mean, he can take it. He can take those hard things that we're wrestling with. And, and, and he's going to drive you to the answers if you're going to look in his word for those answers. You may not like all the answers, but that's where he's going to put you. And that's where he's going to focus your attention on. And that's what David is doing. He's just laying it all out there before the Lord exactly how he feels. He doesn't downplay how discouraged he is. And he's utterly baffled by what he's gone through. Maybe you've reached that point at times in your life where you're going, I don't know why it's going on, Lord. What are you doing here? I don't see you working here. I don't see how this is going to help me. What are you doing in the midst of this? Even though he is upset, he takes it right to God in prayer. He takes it to him. He knows where the answers are going to come from. 
So that's where he goes. He's not given his enemies any reason to bring any evil upon him, much like the things of Christ. We see that. They hate him without reason. Verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs on my head. He's got a lot of enemies. He's got a lot of enemies. He's also pleading with God, and at the moment, he's not getting any answer. I'm weary with my crying, and my throat is parched. But does he stop pleading to the Lord? Does he say, well, I'm not getting any answer. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep pleading. I'm going to keep on. My throat is parched. I will not stop calling upon the Lord. We see similarities to this in John 15 in Christ in the garden before his crucifixion. We see uh, the author of Hebrews lays this kind of thought out about Jesus' prayers and his crying out to the Lord at different times in the fifth chapter of Hebrews. So Jesus, for example, was not exempt from these same types of feelings. I mean, really, he, he cries out to the Lord. He knows, I mean, his, the Lord's plan had been in effect since before creation, that Christ would give his life for us that he would save us. And even though as it gets closer and closer, and the human part of Jesus was was crying out, Lord, are you sure this is what I have to do? I mean, I'll do it if it's your will. Are you sure this is your will? And, of course, it was. As Christ prayed, as Christ spent those, those times of pouring out his heart before the Lord, he grew in his relationship with the Lord. He grew closer to his heavenly Father and understood more what obedience meant. And this is our pattern, what obedience meant. And this is our pattern as well. doesn't matter what we're facing, God will provide, here's the caveat, what is necessary. Ooh. The, the, I didn't, didn't say what I wanted, but what is necessary to see us through those times. Now, the section in, in particular this morning that we're looking at is 13 and, and following, and that's a repeat of some of the cry in the early part of the song. And, and as I said, John quotes this portion when, when Jesus is cleaning out the, uh, uh, the temple, and Paul quotes it in Rome, uh, uh, in Romans chapter 15, that even when our enemies are slandering us, this should be our, our type of behavior. We're to build one another up. We're to encourage one another, even when the world is pressing down upon us. So the enemies that the psalmists are facing, as as we've seen, are more than the hairs on his head. Jesus quotes or references this as he talks about the Pharisees. His brothers have abandoned him. He's become the object of ridicule and name-calling. The rulers speak against him. He's the topic of of the song of the drunkards. I mean, he's just in a bad way here. But in 13 and following, we get that demonstration of of faith of the psalmist as he prays to the Lord in confidence. Look at verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to thee, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in thy graciousness, in in the greatness of thy loving kindness, answer me with thy saving truth. How many of us have included that little phrase, at an acceptable time, in our prayers. Not, not usually. I, I, I can't say that, that I usually do that. <laughs> uh, usually when, when I pray, if, if, I'm, if I'm in a bad way, when do you want the Lord to act? Right now. Do, do we ever? think? I mean, think about that. Lord, I am dying here on the vine, but in an accept, at an acceptable time, I trust that you will act. Mm. 
He will act, okay? But his acceptable time is not always the same as our time. Lord, I know that when you're good and ready, and and the psalmist uses this word twice, and we're going to look at it a little bit more in depth, you will get me out of the mire that I am in. The mire. And and mire is is best described as... um, if you've ever been along a river that is, is tidal, not tidal, but tidal, so it's close to the beach, close to the ocean, and so it's, it, the, the, or along the, uh, the intercoastal waterway as the water goes up and down. When the water goes down, if you walk out there, what's going to happen? Okay? Some of us still know where our shoes are along the tidal basin because they got so stuck in the mire that we had to leave them there. And then we got out and our socks were still in the mud too. Well, Spurgeon talks about this and, and it's, it's just great. He says, Many rivers have on their banks deep deposits of black mud. When any person seeks to leap onto shore, if he should ignorantly or through misfortune spring on this soft mud, he would, unless speedily pulled out by another be sucked under until he was utterly swallowed up and suffocated in the mire. Having no handhold or foothold, the more he labored to extricate himself from the thick adhesive mud, the deeper he would descend until he would be choked in the filth, unless someone was near to pull him out and save him from destruction. True believers are sometimes in the deep mire and in fear of being swallowed up. And he says this was the state of the psalmist. He felt that he was sinking and could not deliver himself, and therefore he cries out unto God for strength. Deliver me out of the mire, let me not sink. So what's your mire? What's the mire you've been in? What's the mire you might be in presently? I mean, it comes in different forms for each of us, that we get stuck in things and we think we are sinking. Now, they might be, they might be nothing when someone else views them, but for us, we're, we're, we're dying. We're sinking and getting deeper. Maybe it's conflict in some fashion. Maybe it's conflict in your home or with your spouse or your children. Maybe it's other family issues. Maybe you're sinking in work and and you just don't know how to get out, but you've got to work and you've got to continue and you just hate getting up each and every day to go to that place. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's memories that have you stuck in a mire and you just can't seem to break free from that. And it's dragging you down, and, and your whole world is being shaped and, and colored by this, this, this mire that you're sinking in. Spurgeon says, sometimes God permits his people to sink into a mire for a time, into a, a state. That is, the purpose of that is to make heaven sweeter when they enter the gates. I'm like, well, Lord, do I have to wait until I get to heaven before I can understand the purpose of this mire, before I can grow from this experience? No, that's not the universal application. But, you know, the day, two days after you have the stomach flu, how do you feel? I feel good. I I thought I was going to die two days ago, but I feel good now. Okay, I've been in the mire. Maybe you've been in the mire for years, and suddenly, you know, after time, the Lord delivers you, and you look back and you see, now I understand God's grace in a deeper and sweeter form. 
After all those struggles that I went through, now I behold God's plan in a clear fashion. The mire and the crying out to God for deliverance is a sign that you are one of the Lord's, that you belong to the Lord. Now, the man who lives in sin as his element, as his element, as his practice, as his world, um, he never feels the weight of guilt and sin. Think of a fish. Does a fish know that it lives in water? No, it's just all he knows is water. Not until he's on the bass fisherman's boat flopping around does he realize that he's suddenly outside of what he knows. Much like we who lived in sin for so many years and then the Lord delivered us out, we didn't even know we were in sin. We didn't even know we were alienated from God until he revealed it to us. I mean, the sinner whose element is sin, he laughs at the way we look at it. We look at the world, we're trying to get away from certain things, and he's saying, I'm having so much fun here, why are you trying to get away from this? Why do you feel bad about these things? Why do you think these things are wrong? Meyer, as the psalmist is declaring to us, is what the pagan lives in. He loves the muck. He loves that. That is his life. And if he wants to be delivered out of it, it's only because it's not serving his purpose and he wants to be selfish about it. But for this, the one who understands the things of Christ, we want out of the mire so that we can serve the Lord. We want to see the Lord deliver us. Spurgeon says, a rich spiritual life is the first requisite for spiritual grief and for spiritual contrition. Depend upon it, beloved, that those who suffer as I have described are children of God. They show it by the way in which they bear their trials. For in their worst times, there is always a clear distinction which marks them as separate from other men. If they cannot shout victory, then they bear the weight patiently. If they cannot sing unto God with their mouth, then their hearts bless the Lord. There is a degree of light even in their worst darkness. Some one star at least gilds the gloom. In the blackest of night, there is still a candle somewhere or other for the Lord's chosen. If they get into the mire, they do not perish there, but they cry out to the Lord, O Lord, save me. And he does. Now, I just want to, I'm going to look at one famous example of this. And that would be Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther, we, we kind of know Martin. He was uh, the, the, the official start of the Reformation when he, he nailed the 95 Thesis on the, on the door. And, and, you know, they wanted him dead, and they chased him down, and he was a guy who, um, you know, was all about working his way to heaven, and then the grace of the Lord came upon him, and he was changed forever. And we think, well, how, how could this apply to Martin? What was his big problem? Throughout his life, Martin Luther had a problem with his faith. He didn't have a problem with Christ. He didn't have a problem with the promises of the Lord. He had a problem doubting his own faith and his own commitment to the Lord. Here's what the Lord had done. And he believed that and he was confident in that. He says, but, but I am questioning, I am wavering in my own trust in Christ. I am wavering in my own faith in Christ and assurance in, sa in the saving action of Christ. There were times he was actually very doubtful concerning his own justification. He believed in the blood of Christ and the finished work of Christ. And it came, became a very serious 
matter to him at times. He got into the mire of doubt and he got into the mire that was sucking him down. And where did he turn? He turned again and again. If you read what he has written, again and again he turned to the Word and he filled his mind with the things of Scripture. Let us sit together and read Psalm 47, uh, his Melanchthon would say to him, so that we can be assured of the things of Christ. So just remember, when you're stuck in the mire, whatever it may be, for the psalmist, false accusations, uh, enemies surrounding you, troubles, working out the sinful things, uh, the world, how to get rid of those, we cry out to God first. We cry out to God foremost. Just like the prodigal son. The prodigal son was never safer than when? When he had nothing to eat and he had no other place to turn but back to his father. And he gets to the father and he says what? Father, against God and you have I sinned. Then he was safe. Then he found his deliverance. So it is with believers. Spurgeon says, He may for a time be satisfied and find pleasure in the things of the world, but he only finds lasting and sure happiness in being embraced in his Father's arms. Because it is only our Heavenly Father that can save us. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many things in the world that we can look to and and think about that might drag us down. So many places that we can uh, put false hope in that that maybe that can save us. Maybe that can help us. Uh, You alone save us. And you tell us that. And you promise that you will save us. For those whose hearts are enlivened, who turn to Christ to receive them as Lord and Savior, our lives are forever changed and forever different. We may for a time be in the mire. We may for a time struggle with various things. But our cry should be to you. Our cry for deliverance, our cry for sustaining grace, and our cries never go unheard. In an acceptable time, you will deliver us. You will provide for us the things that are necessary to see us through. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fix these in our hearts, in our minds. That we would not doubt. That we would be patient. That we would trust in your word that you will save. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.